I would like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Elena Fithian and I'm the student coordinator for the tables. Today our topic is Supreme Court Justice Confirmation, Substance or Show. Our hosts will be Arlen Specter Center Research Fellows Jessica Shainer and Elizabeth Lane of Michigan State University. Hello everybody, my name is Jessica Chainer. I am a PhD candidate at Michigan State and I study the Supreme Court. And I am Elizabeth Lane. I am also a PhD candidate at Michigan State and I also study the United States Supreme Court. I'm Colin Murphy, I'm a communications student. I'm Elena McLaurin, I'm a Law Society student. I'm John Devote, I'm an adjunct here in Philadelphia. Jefferson, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Jefferson University. Evan Lane, I'm the director of the center and have no relationship at all to the district. Right? He's also on the panel today. All right, so thank you everybody for coming today. We really appreciate it. Um, what Elizabeth and I are going to do is we're going to lay out a couple of questions for you, but we kind of wanted to set the scene because Supreme Court nominations are something everybody understands a little bit about, but not a ton. You see them, but you don't always think about them the way that political scientists do. So we wanted to kind of introduce it that way. So our first question, I'm going to lay out the question, and then I'm going to kind of give you guys some background and then let you guys go at it. Sound like a plan? Okay. So the first question is, is do Supreme Court confirmation hearings matter? I see nodding heads. This is a good start. I you guys have strong opinions. So one of the the best way to set this up is there are actually two camps on this. So there is a camp of journalists and some people currently on the Supreme Court who have at various times in their career asked why we do these hearings. So um, Dolly Lithwick, who is Slate's Supreme Court writer, said, were Neil Gorsuch's uh, confirmation hearings as pointless as they seemed? Uh, former just or now Justice Elena Kagan, at the time she was on faculty at the University of Chicago Law School, called the Supreme Court hearings a vapid and hollow charade. And the reason they say this is because they say you don't learn anything. So when we have these hearings and there are three days, back and forth questions, what's actually happening is it's senators saying whatever they want to say in public, in front of a camera, and the nominee gives a non-answer. So I mean, we can see the point in this, um, especially since the Robert Bork hearings in 1987, which is something I'm sure we'll be touching on today, that Supreme Court um, nominees prefer not to answer. Robert Bork answered too much and he didn't get his seat. So this is a lesson and this is uh, kind of like a common way that people think about the courts. It's not necessarily true, but it's the way that they think about it. And we also know that nominees almost always get confirmed. So Bork is the only one in the modern era to make it to the committee that didn't make it to the Supreme Court. But on the other side, the senators say that they have. So Senator Specter, who was on the, so the Senate Judiciary Committee for ever, starting in about 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor was the first one that he worked on, he said that his work on the Judiciary Committee was a matter of great importance. It was really important in that what he was doing, he was helping shape law in the United States by working on these committees. And we know that Senators Kennedy and Biden as well took very great pride in sitting on these committees. And our own research that Elizabeth and I have been working on for the last couple of years shows that confirmation hearings are actually really important for senators because of the televised nature of them that people can watch. They can see what their senators are saying, they can hear what their senators are saying, and they can respond. So it's a really important opportunity to show constituents that they care about what's going on. 
And we know that these confirmation hearings follow them. So people do, uh, constituents do punish senators for what they say and what they do and how they vote during these confirmation hearings. Um, Senator Specter famously had a challenge during 1992 after the Hill hearings, precisely because people were upset with the way that he handled them, rightly or wrongly. Lindsey Graham in 2014, same thing. He had voted for Kagan and Sotomayor despite being a member of the Republican Party, and the Republicans tried to mount a challenge against him. So, the question I pose to all of you is who's right and why? Let's all start. Both. Um, ever since Bork, and I think we have to understand this as well, that the confirmation can take on There's a seven way, by the way. That's how I went through taken on a spectacle nature where it's become a show uh, for the public and almost like the Kavada hearings going way back uh, fun, which became daily entertainment with the Bork hearings and with the commercials that were put out by Gregory Peck uh, against Bork um, starting became something that was hidden, something that was boring something that no one really cared about all that much other than those involved directly, where it became a political spectacle. So I think it's taken on that, whether or not much gets accomplished, it's still a social spectacle where our different social divisions are played out in public for entertainment and for political reasons. So it really depends on what you're asking. Does it matter to the court? Does it matter to us the law? Or does it matter to society at large? I would say it matters very much to society at large. Somewhat to the court, somewhat online. Uh, this is John. Um, there's two points. First of all, it sounds like you're saying that we're not confirming the justices, we're confirming the senators. Uh, because they're the ones that seem to have uh, anything at stake with this. But I think the other point is these judges that are asking for confirmation as justices, for the most part, are anonymous. We don't know who these are. I mean, yeah. People in law and society and lawyers will know them, but the general public usually doesn't know these judges. They're on appeals courts and stuff like that. Nobody really knows that much about who's on the appeals court. Um, I think it's important that at least they're introduced. Yeah, yeah, they don't say very much, but at least you know who they are now, uh, which I think is important. And this is Elizabeth Lane. There's been uh, evidence, right, that Presidents will make strategic decisions to nominate even less well-known justices. Um, so in Alito's confirmation, right, he, they called him the stealth justice because we literally, the public and even those who follow courts, knew basically nothing about him. They didn't know anything about his record um, or anything. And so that sometimes a strategy on behalf of presidents, especially if they think that they might have a challenging confirmation, because this is such high stakes for them, right? This is their legacy. This is what endures long after they're gone and their term in office is over. But a challenging hearing, right, can be detrimental to them, and it can lose their power elsewhere, right? It can hurt their legitimacy, their ability to save or rattle, things like that. And what's actually really interesting to your point about getting to know them, right, so this is your opportunity to talk, is that uh, research shows, despite everybody thinking that Supreme Court nominees don't say anything in their confirmation hearings, that they actually do. 
So they give us the same amount of information post-Bork that they gave us pre-Bork. They still don't answer questions about civil rights and civil liberties. They have pretty patently refused to do that for the most part. But they've done it universally. It's just that we've asked more questions about it. So now it looks like there's a pool. But they do still answer because they want the job and they understand what they have to do. There's also huge parts of this process that we don't see, which is kind of what the scholarship is letting us look at with the field of food senator Stockner's documents. Is so every nominee meets with almost every senator individually and they have one on ones. Uh, I think Justice Sotomayor still has the record. She made it to like 98 of them. <laughs> the woman is a force. She had a broken leg. But they also have these one on one meetings and we don't know what happens in them except like sometimes the secrets come out. So we know Kagan talked with, um, I forget which senator, senator it was, but she talked to them about guns. And she promised that she would go hunting with Justice Scalia, um, just so that she could speak more, uh, more completely about guns, having gone through and gone through the clay pigeon shooting experience. So what we're like, we see some in these hearings, but we're also getting the opportunity here to kind of dig into what's going on elsewhere, which I think is really cool. That was Jessica, by the way. I'm sorry, I broke you. <laughs> I, I also have I, I also think that. Um, they do expose philosophy, where they may not say this specific point, although they may lie, and as we may come to Slater, how Paris Thomas lied to all inspectors about his affirmative action standards. Uh, but whether they're strict constructionists, whether they're more liberal in interpreting, or they're modernists, that will come out. We can interpret how they may approach cases based So that can come out too. Would you mind telling us that story? I think Okay. Uh, Senator Speckley was in favor of uh, affirmative action, and he had his staff, and I'm sure when you folks look through the documents, you'll find there's a nice memo that his staff presented to him of all the cases that Thomas had been involved in, which weren't many, because he was grossly unqualified to be a Supreme Court justice. He only served about a year as an appellate court judge. So there wasn't much of a history, and it didn't take that long for them to do the research. And in the memo, you'll see no cases on affirmative action. When he was interviewed by our inspector, inspector asked him specifically, what do you think about affirmative action, whether or not he's in line with a special case called Metro, which was a strong affirmative action case that gave women a, um, an ability to get TV licenses over men, so it encouraged more women in the recording industry. And he said, oh, I'm in favor of Metro. I have no problems with it. It turned out that later was found out during the confirmation process in Tulane that he lied, that he was part of a three-judge panel. He was the second vote against a very similar case to Metro, and he, wrote a, he was the writer who wrote a scathing opinion against affirmative action, but he didn't sign it. Um, the way it works in law is you can write the opinion until you write the order, which says it's here by this day, order and decree, this case, boom, then it becomes law. Uh, he hadn't signed it because he knew he was being considered. So he didn't want to be a record. So when he told Spectre, I haven't written any decision on affirmative action, he was technically right. But he lied because he actually wrote it. He just had to enter the order. And the interesting thing is, after he was confirmed, he stepped down as Supreme Court Justice for an hour, 
he became a California justice, signed the decision, then he became a Supreme Court decision, uh, justice again. So that case became law. So I think the point of that is that sometimes you can ask them what their opinions are and the like, and Clarence Thomas is an example of that. And that was Evan Lane, in case Clarence Thomas wants to come in. <laughs> <laughs> Statue of limitations is over. So what, you guys are of a generation entirely consistent. Elizabeth and I have both entirely consistent about this one. And watching the population of our kids. What do you guys think? Like, do you guys watch them? Um, this is Colin. Um, I'm pretty critical of the media when it comes to legal environments because they often distort the process in weird ways. Um, but in this context, I worry that like making this a media, like a way for the public to engage with their senators, holding these Supreme Court justices accountable, there's really no way that they can actually do that once they become Supreme Court justices, right? Um, so it seems like that just politicizes the, uh, the nomination of Supreme Court justices, which is not supposed to be a political environment. It's supposed to be you know, based on law and not have those types of issues be an issue. Um, so I I haven't like studied this, so I don't know how much this actually, the media involvement actually politicizes it, but that's where I, I would like be really keen to understand that that actually occurs. Just to fill you in, this, the Clarence Thomas was a really great example of this. It went on in the hearing room with the Senate, it wasn't as important as going on in the press conference, okay? And the Republicans who are very strongly supporting Clarence Thomas and very strongly attacking Anita Hill could not bring the stuff that into the hearing room, what they brought into the press room. And I'll give you two examples of that and how powerful they were. Um, Anita Hill made a very good witness. She was very believable. So, they came up with this theory that she had a disease called erotomania, um, that is that she fantasizes in her mind that Clarence Thomas came on to her and all these sexual things with her. She actually believes them, but it's not true. And they brought in a psychiatrist, and it's improper to diagnose people without treating them, but he came in and he said she has erotomania, and they said that in the press conference. There's no way that could have been presented at the hearing because it would have been totally, um, totally irrelevant and also improper. But the whole public heard, and all the public opinion polls and the senators really did care about the polls. That was uh, very influential. Another one was, and excuse the words, but this is what it's called, was the pubic, uh, pubic hair activist. And she had claimed that Thomas, not how this is erotic in any way I escaping, <laughs> but had made some sort of comment on a pubic hair on a coke can, and somehow that was the way that he was coming on to her. Well, they dug out these kids that went who were law students in Anita Hills. She taught in Southern University, which by the way was very anti-black woman teaching them law, and found the, the worst rednecks that were in her class, traced them down to where they were hunting somewhere, and came up with an affidavit that when she handed out her tests, she made sure that her pubic hair was on the test. 
Okay, that was called the Cube Affidavit. That was released in the press and threatened to be used at the hearing if they didn't back down on bringing in that additional witness who confirmed Henry Hill. So another part of this is not what's going on in the hearing room, but what's going on in the press room. And the senators are saying how much they care uh, uh, about this, um, creating this other hearing room where all kinds of crap can come in, like a rotomania, pubic hair affidavits, and all that. And that's how they went to destroy Anita Hill, which they were fairly successful in doing based on that. So, yeah, the press is really involved, Colin, but in a different hearing room. Excuse me, this is Jessica. It's part of what makes it so effective, right? Is that so senators know they're not necessarily out for the greater good. Uh, they're out for making their constituents happy. And sometimes that means taking down a nominee by whatever means necessary, right? So Republicans wanted Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas was going to uphold their values. He was young. He was 45 when he joined the court. He was very young. And he was going to sit out in that seat for 40 years, and we're coming up on 30 now. Uh, past 30, maybe? He's been there for a long time. They wanted him there. So they were going to do whatever it took to get him there because that's what their constituents wanted. So part of what they're showing in the hearings is like, we care about, we understand that you care about this issue. So uh, affirmative action came up during his with the Democrats, with Wade, um, different, like all the hot spots, right? The things that people, that, uh, Politicians know their constituents care about the big issues. They all come up in the hearings. Other things come up in the press because they'll do whatever they need to do to cover that vote and to still appeal to people within that conversation on TV, within the hearing and outside of the hearing, if that makes sense. Yeah, so the other interesting thing is, is a lot of times we think of Bork, right? He's the one who set this ball rolling, but interesting work by Ferragamis and Muddy King Pines, well, what we don't realize is that Sandra Day O'Connor's hearings were the very first one ever to be televised, 1981. And is it really that, is that maybe what changed things? And it's really hard to distinguish between the two because they happened so close together. Um, so yeah, Bork was this anomaly, right? We haven't had something that, I don't, I don't wanna call it bad, but that no. controversial, yeah. Um, in that way, right, just about his viewpoints and beliefs, but also did the fact that they were like, oh, people are actually paying attention to this, and our constituents can see the way that we behave and the type of questions we ask. This is an is this an opportunity for us maybe to change the way we act? So because for a long time, they were simple voice votes um, to confirm nominees and. They didn't even, the nominees didn't even have to report to the Capitol for any type of hearing whatsoever. So. Sometimes they filled out a questionnaire. Yeah. So they would, you know, answer a couple of questions. Was it Wizard White when he did his in 62? Byron White, Byron Wizard White came in and they talked about football. That was all they wanted to know. He was like the only pro football player we've ever had on the Supreme Court. The senators wanted to talk about football. It wasn't anything about substance, but talking about substance is relatively new. This is Karen Albert. I have actually a question. I think it's relevant to what we're talking about here. I just, and uh, my recollection, because I'm old enough to remember, and maybe 
experience in which our own sector really needed help. And that, you know, really did cause him political problems with women, especially. And that whole episode changed the way senators deal with hearing that they have. From what you this is just, I don't know, we haven't really looked at it from that angle. No, that actually, right. That's actually a really cool question. Mm -hmm. um, it did change the representation on the committee itself. So the images on the TV of yeah. the 18 white men oh, right. questioning this very tiny black woman, that was a bad visual. Like, it didn't look good. And if nothing else, senators understand what doesn't does not look good. Um, so in the next confirmation hearing, which would be Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 93, by then, Diane Feinstein and at least one other woman had joined the um, the committee, and now we're starting to get a female voice on that committee, which is really important. And, and that's something we're excited to look at. And not that we want anybody to retire from the court, but something we're excited to look at for future nominations now with um, Harris and Booker on the Judiciary Committee. There is even more minority and female representation. We've had several Amy Klobuchar, um, one of those as well. So as we get more women, we can actually look at more interesting things like that. So how has it changed the committee itself? As far as how it's changed the way the male senators approach it, I would assume that it did, but we don't have any. We'll get back to you after we run our data. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, this is John. I, I mean, you can make the argument that TV could have the opposite, opposite effect of what you're concerned with, kind of depoliticizes it in the fact that you have more diversity on the Judiciary Committee now because of television. While before this, it was just the old white guys club who would say, okay, yeah, that guy believes what we believe, and whoever the majority party was is the one that they're going to nominate, and he's not, there's not going to be any questions. Now there are questions, and I think you could argue that TV is the reason because of that. It's possible. Um, the problem is, is, and this is, again, like, we're dealing with a small end problem here because we've only got we're up to 13 now with four situations, 13 nominations in the televised era. So we can't sort out yet if it's we know that polarization's increased starting pretty much with the O'Connor hearing. So they've gotten more politically diverse and like now these your political affiliations really matter for nominations you didn't used to. Because they also didn't used to nominate as extreme nominees as they do. So we can't sort out if it's gender, if it's TV, or if it's polarization, because they all happen at the same time. And we also know that over time, more controversial or scandalous um, nominees have been nominated. And then we also know that probably because of polarization, interest groups have become involved, like much, much more prevalent than they ever were before. So it's hard to differentiate between all these things. And then also, uh, there used to be other things that mattered, right? You Maybe you were a Southern Democrat, which was different than being a Democrat, especially, you know, during Thurgood Marshall's hearings. Um, we see that, right, it's not this strict divide if you break down how people voted, but race mattered a lot during that confirmation hearing, even though at that time, what our research tells us is that ideology didn't really matter as long as you were a qualified nominee, which I think anyone would say, like, no one would argue that Thurgood Marshall wasn't qualified, right? He had years and years of experience with the NAACP. So it's, it's hard to tease out, at least through our quantitative method, 
it's what exactly has pushed everything in this direction because they're all kind of moving in the same with with each other. Another issue too is like I guess the Brennan effect. Like you can nominate someone, like Eisenhower nominated Brennan. His biggest two regrets are on the bench. Right. <laughs> he thought he was going to be some conservative Catholic. And uh, Brennan turned out to be an unbelievable liberal. And of course, um, you know, the uh, the Chief Justice himself would know Earl Warren was from California guy who supported the uh, internment of Japanese wow. in California and was thought to be a real conservative when we know what happened there. Yeah. So it's interesting if part of the research could be did they change after the confirmation process? Did they change with time? And that, and that makes the confirmation process basically irrelevant because the court changes who you were at the beginning, middle, and end of this is actually, this is a question people were trying to grab, because we know Harry Blackman did. We know that he drifted. He started voting with um, Warren Berger more than anybody else on the court, and by the end he was the liberal stalwart, right? So one of his last votes was Casey. Well, I mean, he remained, like, relatively moderate. He wasn't yeah, super, he was but still then moderate, but he's still drifting. We have people like Douglas, like, if you look at how we, how we gave or measure ideology, if you're if you're like kind of like moving along, someone has a consistent ideology towards the end of his career, he basically takes a nosedive in the liberal direction. Um, you know, this is likely due to that was also during the civil rights movement, and he thought that the First Amendment free speech was an unlimited fundamental right, like it should not be limited in any capacity. Um, but yeah, so drift is something that is been people have been trying to capture for a long time, and Chief Justice Roberts actually. Um, there, I think there's an article, we couldn't remember the other day, we were just talking about this, Jessica and I were, sorry, this is Elizabeth Lane, and basically, does he, is he drifting, or does he make strategic decisions as the Chief Justice to maintain this air of legitimacy, that politics don't matter, that in these really salient cases that you don't want to have this 5-4 split. Like, historically, right, we know that this was exactly the case in Brown versus Board of Education, and they basically said, we're not going to decide this case unless we can have a unanimous decision because it's so important that we show a united front. And then famously, right, in the Affordable Care Act case, there's rumors that Roberts changed his vote at the last minute. We don't really know, and we won't unless we ever get to see those conference papers, which seems would be, unlikely. seems yeah. unlikely given the way that justices feel about sharing I, was, I actually have some inside information to share with you because the night of the decision, I got a call from Paul Inspector, who does have some connections to these people. And he got you don't say. Your picture's behind on the wall. I got, got here, he is, I got a call from here, get, the senator's on the line if you were to vote. And so, he gets on the line, I was just quick in the sense, Arbor, we want to roll with the true fraction of patriarch. And I go, yeah, yeah, what happened? So this is what he told me. He said that Scalia was pressuring Roberts very, very strongly, knowing that Roberts was on the fence, and to the point of harassment. And Roberts was very upset about this, because Roberts is the Chief Justice. He's supposed to pressure, real pressure the Chief Justice. And what he told me is Scalia's heavy-handed pressure on Roberts to put him on the hmm. It was almost a power. 
saying, this is, this is what he says to me. This is my court, not yours. And that's why he voted. So I said, I can't believe these are my words. I can't believe that we have health care because of ego. And his response was, oh, he puts his pants on, the bottom leg of his car. So that, yes, you can sit with me on that. I was amazed. On those yeah. And the collegial dynamics are fascinating, right? Because Roberts has faced criticism, like, right, he's not the biggest personality on the bench mm -hmm. for most of his time. That was obviously Scalia. And then we know Ruth Bader Ginsburg has a following. And then even still, people don't say it's Roberts' court. It's Kennedy's court, right? Because Kennedy is the one who actually makes the decisions, right, since he is that swing justice, who, there are rumors, will be the next to retire. I think he told the clerks that he hired for the, like, upcoming term, like, you might have a job, basically. I'm not sure. Um, that was that was the rumors from his old clerks. And so it'll be interesting, and there's different theories about this, but we don't get to see it play out a lot, is does the swing vote matter? Is there this move the median game that when this happens, when these votes come up before the Senate Judiciary Committee, is that going to be an even more contested vote than what we've seen? Because it will be so significant in our policy. This was part of the concern. So when um, President Trump was putting forward his two nominees, I can't remember the one of them was from Pennsylvania, uh, and he was a moderate, and he would have challenged Kennedy for the median, and the other one was Neil Gorsuch. We know Neil Gorsuch got the nomination. It was a one-for-one -one replacement. Scalia for Gorsuch. Not much of a difference there. There was an opportunity that had Trump gone with his original instinct, which was to go with his more moderate positions, he either knew him or his sister, who's a, ju a judge, knew him. Um, we would have had this weird two-median game. You can't really have two medians on nine, but, but you would have had people competing and switching back and forth for the median, which is something you haven't seen since Sandra Day O'Connor retired. She and Kennedy used to flip almost every time. Yeah, and there's research on particularly those two and about their personality traits and is it are they true moderates in the way that they feel um like that their actual personal preferences are that moderate or is it a power move does their personality make them want the power of being that deciding vote there's some really cool there's going to be some really cool upcoming work about that as the political science moves a little more toward the Getting back to the confirmation process, <laughs> okay, where, where is your research been taken in regards to the significance of it? So we spent uh, about three weeks ago, the week at the archives, going through Senator Spector's papers, and we took photos of as many as we could. Basically, most of the handwritten notes, no, because they were um, very difficult to read. And... Um, what we want to do is run them through optical recognition software, um, and basically that transfers all of those typed files, memos, interest groups, briefings on these candidate justice nominees, um, run them through this optical recognition software, which will allow the, us to convert them to actual text files, and then we can content analyze them. What was the type of information that interest groups um, individuals, lots of lawyers, law firms, um, law school professors would write and what would they share? What were their opinions? What were the common themes that would come up between all of these different hearings? 
So we want to use this like very exploratory because no one's gotten to look at this stuff before. From what we could tell, and we talked about this in our application, was that I think only a, one other person or one other group of political scientists have really gotten to even look at Senator's papers, um, and I think that was Senator Dole. Uh, so we don't actually know anything about how senators prepare systematically um, for these hearings. And so that's what we want to find out, basically. And then just to throw a fun anecdote out there, so like we didn't, we kind of knew what we were looking for, and like we wanted to see how interest groups were influencing the questions that got asked. Mm -hmm. um, there are six boxes about work in the archives, and at least two, if not three of them, are all briefing books about two inches thick from interest groups. Yes. That lay out all of his dis all of Bork's decisions explicitly. Why they so they're mostly liberal groups. There are a couple of conservative groups saying this is why this doesn't work. Um, NARAL, um, the NAACP, the ACLU. They're all sending just these giant briefing books that are saying like this is why you can't vote for him. But one of the things that we found that I wasn't expecting to see. So Senator Specter was uh, was a prosecutor. Um, he was very proud of the fact that he was a very good attorney. So he really liked to dig into the weeds of what was going on. And he would reach out to legal scholars all over mm -hmm. the country with requests to say, I want to know how so how Judge Bork, when he was on the DC Circuit Court, ruled about X or Y. Can you explain this to me? And these world-class attorneys would respond with these like, beautifully written and typed things about like, we're gonna break down the big four cases for you. And then you'd see the notes from his aides talking about, like, this is what's going on. Besto ever said, I, uh, Senator Specter, I truly, res I'm paraphrasing, I truly respect you, but you are out of your depth if you're going to talk to Robert Bork about antitrust. <laughs> that was, like, his specialty. Which is, like, his, that was his specialty, was antitrust. And he's like, just don't, don't go there. And I he, would not suggest He it. continued to consult, we found, with the same legal experts of all the way yeah, until one of them passed away, basically, what we found in the files, and he found a new one. For, um, it was, was he from NYU Law School, I believe, or something like that? Yeah, I don't recall exactly where he was from. We ended up Googling him, because we kept seeing his name over and over again. He also often got, um, like, petitions, basically. And it was groups of professors and law school professors that would sign saying, like, you can't vote for this person or you can vote for this person, we support this person. Um, there is also obviously really interesting letters from just individual attorneys saying that, you know, their interpretation of this or that is like outlandish and you need to ask about it. You need, this is the kind of question that you need to ask. Um, and he would write back too. And you could see how he, was no he would leave notes on the drafts. So um, there were a lot of weird sticky notes. And from what we could, again, his handwriting was not the greatest, but from what we could put together, you could actually see variations of him trying to work through how he was going to ask his questions. So one of the files actually had just like a legal pad that he'd been working through. It was really cool um, because you could see him trying to work out how he was going to ask this question and you would see where the references were coming from because he'd stuff the opinions into like the notes. So you would see, he'd go to the, the Congressional Legal Service and have them pull 30 cases of this, that this nominee had written. And then you'd see kind of like notes, and then you'd see the case, and then you'd see notes on the case, and then we'd move to another one. It was really cool. So he put in a 
lot. I don't know that all senators put in that much effort. Senator Specter was a unique individual in terms of how he approached this job on the Judiciary Committee. Super cool stuff. So we're exploring what we can find, but we're finding really cool stuff. And you know that Specter was one of Farmland Luger's not confirmation process there actually changed history because the four can still you know, be on the court at the same time. Uh, and if we had four votes. And if we had four, we probably wouldn't have Kennedy. So. So who knows? Yeah. You know, it's hard to predict, but Spectre took the role of going as a Republican, going against the president's choice at the time. He was the only committee member, the only Republican committee member to do So the confirmation process meant something there, but it also meant something in Thomas too, because if anything came out of it, you know, he was selected, you could say that awareness of women's issues in the public spectacle became something as well. So I wonder, are you looking just at the confirmation process or the social process that results from the confirmation process? Right now, just the confirmation. Um, so our long-term goal is to actually write a book about Senator preparation for a nomination. This might be 10 years down the road, but it's like a long-term goal that we have because we think that people, like Elizabeth said, people don't understand this from the senator's perspective. We understand the justices, we understand the president, but like nobody really pays attention to what the senators do through this process. And then we might be able to dig into some of the more social aspects, which on the bright side also, like race and gender scholars, there are some amazing race and gender scholars out there and they have attacked 92 of the 92 elections that happened after the Clarence Thomas hearings, like they, it was the year of the women. And they've actually been making comparisons between that and what they think is going to happen in the later elections. And just how about the lack of confirmation process? <laughs> which we had, um, that was name already. Merrick Garland. So that was one of our other, one of our other questions is what we wanted to know is that do we think this Merrick Garland, Neil Gorsuch, basically the combination of events or sequence of events that unfolded, is this the new normal? It used to be that a president selected a nominee and basically that was enough, right? They were assumed to be a qualified candidate and it was basically the Senate's job, maybe not necessarily to advise, but to consent, right? To give that rubber stamp. And maybe that's not what we're seeing now. We know that things have become more politicized. And so it's not just that these nominees aren't qualified because Merrick Garland was most certainly qualified. But is that something that we're going to see? We also know that the Gorsuch hearings, right, the filibuster was employed, which was something um, that we never thought that we would see until, what was it, 2013 when it was used for the first time for a circuit court judge? Yeah. Um, so... That was one of our other questions. Is this a new normal? Is this such highly politicized nature because of how salient Supreme Court nominations are? Is this something that we're going to have to continue to deal with? Or will there be a way that we could perhaps get back to wanting the Supreme Court to be the Supreme Court and stop politicizing these events so much? I, I'm just interested for the students here as far as their understanding process and whether or not you know, they're hearing this for the first time and Colin, you know, how much did you follow any of this earlier on? Um, I didn't follow specifically, like, I know that it's become, like, Trump wanted a Supreme Court justice with a conservative bent. 
I've never heard somebody say they want a justice that is conservative or liberal. Um, so I know that it is going towards a political bent, but um, I, I'm interested to know if this is something that is going to be a new normal, but like if, if it's media involvement or if it's the way that um, like the entire system is structured towards like a, in a polarized system. Um, I don't know like what that is though. You think it's number two. Number two. Uh, so the increased polarization in the Senate, we know from what's been happening with the lower court judges. So um, your district and circuit court judges also cycle through the judiciary committee. And those are a mess right now. You can't get anyone confirmed. Um, right now they're getting them confirmed, or they were last fall, strictly because the Senate wasn't doing anything else, so they were just scheduling back to back to back. And the Republicans had the majority, and they were like, we are going to fill all of these empty seats right now. We, here we go. Because there were a lot of empty seats, and that's been a problem on the district courts and circuit courts. Um, Since Clinton? Yeah, that there's not enough people to do these jobs. Even though the seats are there, the Senate has appropriated basically those jobs and created them because that's the Senate's role as well, but they need them as cases are getting so backlogged because, right, the, they don't have discretionary jurisdiction on these lower courts um, and they have to hear the cases, but they don't have enough judges basically to go around. And one thing that we saw is that we had two judges basically get a non-recommendation from the ABA. So the American Bar Association is also involved in these Supreme Court confirmation hearings, which we also saw notes in Senator Spector's papers from the ABA, and they basically designated two of Trump's, was it district court nominees, as unqualified, unfit for the job, which, so like, then barely, yeah, that doesn't so, happen. So unpolitical, though, because they, with even Clarence Thomas, who was clearly unqualified, they gave, uh, he was qualified, like, they called him qualified. Yeah, but with, with, there was some, Votes with reservations, yeah. which that was being as nasty as they could be back then. So I'm really shocked that they got that qualified. Mm -hmm. But I think part of what Colin is getting at, and please correct me if I'm getting Colin right. Yes. Okay, so if I'm getting the question wrong, what you're talking about is an, we'll call it an apolitical process. We can get back into that later. You're talking about an apolitical legal process that is being um, held hostage by a political process, right? So what Elizabeth's talking about is very much, we can't fill this lower court, like there's, there are cases that need to be heard, like the court is a logistical thing, right? Like you bring cases, they need to be heard by judges. We are not giving the lower courts enough judges to do it because we're using this political process to try and game the system all the way down there, which is fascinating. And that's definitely what's, it's, it's polarization that's doing it. And part of it is like Donald Trump, it was sort of his presidential mandate to like get a Supreme Court justice that Republicans would agree with. And I don't think that like when we elect senators or a president that that has, that should have ramif political ramifications on our legal system. So, yeah. It was even more than that. It was to get rid of Roe versus Wade. It wasn't just to get a liberal or a conservative judge. It was to get the judge that would get rid of Roe versus Wade. I mean, it was very clear. And I don't think that's ever, ever happened before. That, uh, to be that explicit about your intention. Because yeah. like Bush gave it a wink and a nod. So right. this, this would be Bush 43. 42? 43. 43. Mm -hmm. uh, 
we're going to pick judges who agree with what we agree with. Wink, right. wink, nudge, nudge, nudge. Right. That means judges who are going to overturn Roe. Yeah. I think the liberals have been a little more explicit. So um, both Clinton, Clinton-ish, and definitely Obama said, move for judges on the court who are going to appeal to Roe v. Wade. Because it's easier to go on record maintaining something than it is to go on record saying you want to demolish something. This is Karen. I just wanted to ask what you think. I was sort of thinking with the whole Merrick Garland episode that you know he was never given a hearing. That what you think if the Democrats could just out of retribution do the same if Trump gets to a point, uh, and they will have the numbers because it would be the Senate and they have, but they have. Uh, it's a bare majority in the Senate. It's a bare majority. So if by chance the Democrats do get a majority in the Senate in 2018 and Trump gets to, he's still there, gets to appoint somebody higher, do you think the Democrats would try to just do the same thing, hold up the nomination? That's hard. It's, it's hard because I think that the Republicans got some heat for doing what they did, mm-hmm. right? Politicizing this process that, like you said, a lot of people think should not be politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess you would have to weigh the negativity or blowback that might come from doing that versus, you know, your supporters, Democrats, who are like, but I put you there to stand up for me, right? That this constituent maintenance that we kind of started this conversation with. Um, yeah, that's really tough. Well, the one, uh, this is John. Um, the one thing I think has been happening, though, is each party has always wanted to one-up the party, so they might do the same thing again and then try something even worse. Because, the, for example, the, um, the filibuster. I mean, as you said, it was never done, but then they, start doing, they started doing it when, and then when you know Bush comes in, they do it even more, and it's harder to get them nominated. And of course, Barack Obama, it's even harder. And now, at least, Donald Trump has the same party in charge, so. It's a little bit easier, but um, it seems every new president, they, each party says, okay, you did this, so we're going to do this, and we're going to do it even more. Um, and it, that's what I'm worried about. It's just they're going to make it so it's so much of a lockdown and nothing gets done. And an interesting thing is I think there's public opinion research that's found that Republicans, voters, actually care more. They list the Supreme Court as a higher priority than liberal voters, uh, Democrats. Voters, and so that also may be why Republicans were willing to do what they did with Merrick Garland because they know that that's something that their voters really care about. Like that's one of their like top priorities compared to liberal voters who don't prioritize it quite as high. But with that said, Kennedy is the last person on the court who is in the majority in D.C. So Planned Parenthood D.C. is our last really big in any way saving precedent for abortion. And Kennedy was part of this magical three. How is that? The abortion clinics case from oh, Texas. Well, that one too. But this one is more to the, the procedure itself. Um, he's the last one left. So what happens when he's gone and no one on that court? So part of the reason that they said Kennedy actually wrote on Heller's death was that he was protecting his legacy on Jason. And protecting it is part of it because the vote was weird, and it didn't make a ton of sense, especially now that was still does the justice court. So that yeah, the woman was left. Mm-hmm. You said something. We're running out of time, but I just want to get this out. 
says something that really disturbed me was how the Republicans really care and the Democrats don't. Um, well, it's not that they don't. Not as much. Yes. I just want everyone in this room to understand the stakes. Um, yes. We're talking about women's right to choose disappearing, which is a very strong possibility. We're talking about right to be safe in your homes um, regarding search warrants or the exclusionary rule, excluding evidence which is obtained illegally, which you can't use illegally obtained evidence now. Uh, that could disappear um, very well. Um, your Fifth Amendment right to incriminate yourself may disappear. A lot of these civil rights privacy cases we've seen can disappear. Even things we assume are well understood, like gay marriage, could disappear. The Supreme Court controls so much of what we do every day. I actually believe it's more important than the president in many ways. And if we're not paying attention to this um, in our votes and in our readings and our research, we are missing major thing. If we're going, oh, everything's okay, it's not. And the possibility of it not being okay to a very strong degree uh, on civil rights, women's rights, um, LGBT rights, affirmative action rights, all these things that we've come to take for granted in the last 20 years, privacy issues. Um, you better start paying attention, and it better stop being on the top of your list too. Um, I hate to put it that <laughs> strong, but it's that powerful. These rights you take for granted disappear tomorrow. That is so uh, while we have the last statement, with that negative, horrible statement. <laughs> uh, All right, so really quick, how many of you guys voted for the first time in 2018 for the midterms? Okay, but how many of you are planning to vote in the midterms? Vote in the midterms. Those are really important. And Democrats especially are really bad at showing up. If you're a Republican, like, hold the majority. If you're a Democrat, like, go. Just go. You guys have seen what they've been able to do in Texas. But more to this point, uh, I want to piggyback off of what Evan said. The Supreme Court matters. Uh, who we put on the court matters. And it's what Elizabeth said is right. Democrats do care less. Our presidents have traditionally cared less about stacking the courts than Republican uh, presidents have. Took Barack Obama forever to put together his list for the circuit court, and he didn't have that much time to start filming everyone. That's why we have such a backup now that President Trump is getting to fill. It's just because Democrats didn't care about it, and it's Republicans' first priority. These things matter, and they have really long-term consequences. So, you know, if any of you are interested in studying it, come talk to us. <laughs> Yeah, I just think um, with our research, too, to, to, to play devil's advocate, right, I think we have to think of this from the senator's point of view, right? They are put in the position that they are, right, with great responsibility to represent their constituents, right? So while we may talk about this grandstanding behavior and these asking these really um, crying questions as something negative, because we don't want to think of the court as something that should be politicized or is politicized. At the same time, I think just to push back and offer a different point of view, they're doing their job and they're doing what we elected them to do, even if they can't um, change the ultimate decision to confirm or not, uh, they're representing people. So I think that would be the positive outlook on all of this. They're doing their job. And they're doing very effective. Yes. 
Thank you very much. Appreciate you coming here all the way from the great city. Thank you for having us.